Let me just give you the bottom line. The exchange life is the gospel message. That's it. Ephesians 5.8, let me give you an alternate translation, but an accurate translation. God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in exchange for us. Um, that little preposition for can be translated in exchange for. That's not a way out translation. Now, here's the, 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 the term exchange life. There's some argument as to where it came from. Uh, probably it was coined by Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China back in the mid-1800s, though he may have gotten it from somewhere else. There's an excellent little book I stuck in my pocket. Um, you got that from OMF called The Exchange Life. It's just an excerpt from Hudson Taylor's. It's by Hudson Taylor. I talk about him so much in sermons and used him as illustrations so much. One of my members found an old picture of Hudson Taylor and had it put in an antique frame, and I've got it hanging in my office. Uh, here's the goal that every pastor ought to have, though I know it's not true that they all do. Here's ought to be the passion of every church, that the exchange life is woven throughout the whole church so that in every area, in everything that's done, this message of the cross and the exchange life becomes central. Um, what I'm going to do is share with you a little bit about how we've tried to do that in the church I pastor. And um, I'll give you some details and some general things. And let me give a disclaimer before I start. You know, when anytime pastors get up and talk about their church, they usually give you all the honey and no bees. And there's no such thing as a church without trials and a church without problems. And we've sure got those. But I've been there almost 16 years, and I have seen God honor this message of the exchange life, which, as I said, is the gospel. I've seen, I've seen the Lord honor that as it has begun to permeate the various ministries and the lives of the people in the church. And um, here's how we do that. And... Uh, I, I can't help. I I, I know that um, alliterating talks and sermons where you start all the points with the same letter, I know that's not necessarily spiritual. I had a seminary professor that said alliteration was silly, senseless, and stupid. But <clears throat> that's just the way I think. I'm sorry. So I've got some, some P's for you that deal with how this can be integrated into your church. Now I realize I'm not talking to all pastors. Are there any pastors here even? Okay, I've got a couple. Um, by the way, David Wade was my youth minister. We served together back in the 80s. When did you leave? In 1990. And uh, so we, we had some time together, and he finally left and made something of himself. But uh, he changed his life. The first P is there has to be a passion about the exchange life. You know, when this message becomes more than academic. When it really impacts your life, then you get passionate about it. Uh, Dr. Solomon and I have talked about various pastors, not critical or anything, but just analyzing where they are to try to help them. And, and there are so many pastors that, that they hear the message of the exchange of life and, and it's sort of like, oh yeah, yeah. Believe that. Always have believed that. Yeah. And then you get some tapes of their messages and somehow it never enters in. 
It's simply an intellectual concept that they have bought into and said, yeah, that's, that's it, just like I'm premillennial about the second coming or I'm this or that about some other... It's just a, a doctrine among many doctrines. But when your life has been impacted by the cross of Jesus Christ, then this me- it becomes passionate. It, it begins to be woven into everything you do. Um, and I'll have to be honest, I've never sat back and had a plan. Okay, here's my plan. Here's the way I'm going to integrate this message into everything we do as a church. I've never had that. It just happened. It's, it's something that's got such a hold on me, and then I've seen it as it's impacted so many other lives. I didn't plan to do it. It just, it just happened because I was passionate about it. Wow, not I, but Christ. How liberating. When I preach on marriage, how do you preach on marriage without talking about the exchange life? When I do a marriage ceremony, I go in through something like this. I don't do the same one all the time, and I never like those that come out of books. I've just never been a read a ceremony out of a book person. I'm sorry, but I'll do something like this. I'll have the couple up in front of me. Now, they've already been through six weeks of premarital counseling where the exchange life is woven into their premarital counseling. But I, I will, I'll say something like this. I'll read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following. And I will say, for instance, that's the passage that says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And I'll look at the husband and I'll say, Did you know that that's absolutely impossible for you to do? And, uh, you know, you kind of, you know, all, everybody goes on automatic pilot in wedding ceremonies, right? You just get through all this stuff. And you can see them there standing there and, and they'll go, Work that, you know. And, and then I'll read for her, you know, to submit to your husband as the church to Christ and all those things. And I'll read some things out of Proverbs 31. You talk about a good guilt chapter for women. <laughs> all you got to do is read Proverbs 31. They all just wilt, you know, and feel guilty and all this. And, and so, <clears throat> I'll read Proverbs 31 or a section of that and then I'll look at the bride and say, you can't do that. And then to share, but when you come to the cross of Christ, the resurrected Christ in you, living out His life through you, not I but Christ, the exchange life, then you can love your wife as Christ loved the church. He loves her through you. You can submit to your husband. You can be a Proverbs 31 woman <clears throat> in every area of life, in, in messages on holiness. How can you preach on holiness without preaching it around the cross and exchange life? How can you preach or talk about ministry Apart from the exchange life, how can you talk about missions? Name any area of the church. The exchange life is woven through all of it. And so the goal, the desire, the passion is that this is not one message among many messages, but this is the central core that's woven into every message. The passion. Let's look for the procedures for teaching the exchange life over these years that since about 1982 when this became more than just uh, facts to me since 1982 I've developed several tools and uh, some of the tools I'm going to talk about I will make available to you if you'd like to have them I had them all planned to bring and I got caught right before I left and was running and then I got caught in the parking lot by somebody else at the church and I kept looking at my watch and know how traffic is so I ran off and left them in short but 
If you will leave me your address, or just let me just say, if you'll leave your address with Kathy, then she will get that to me, and we'll mail those to you at no cost. I think <laughs> somebody came close to the building there. Um, but let me share with you um, some procedures and how we do it. Um, and we developed a tool called TELL. And TELL is a little acrostic that stands for Teaching, Exchanged, Life, Living. That's what TELL stands for. And um, TELL is, is a, a unique approach. I don't like to write stuff. Now, John, Dr. Solomon, a lot of these guys, I mean, they just, that, that turns their crank. I like to proclaim stuff. I hate to write stuff. I'd rather get something somebody else wrote and use it. And, uh, but I couldn't find anything that put together some things that were just, I was passionate about that could be actually used in the local church. And, and I didn't like this distinction we make in, in, in conservative Bible-believing churches most of the time between evangelism and discipleship. And you got your evangelism hit squads out there who are going out and getting people to pray a prayer to receive Christ. And then once somebody prays a prayer and invites Christ into their life, then they take them and pass them off to somebody else who then's never witnessed anybody in their life, but they can take them and try to teach them how to read the Bible and all that. And I did all that for years. And you have your hit squad and then you have your people that try to deal with them. But somehow, about 90% of the people that would pray with the evangelism teams never made it over to the discipleship team. And I'm saying 90% conservatively, it was probably more like 95% never made it. And we would train people in evangelism and they would go out into the community and, and they would come back in saying, Whoo! Four people received Christ tonight. And I'd say, Great! Give me their names. Here's their names and address. So then I go to the discipleship people. Here's some brand new Christians who just invited Christ into their life. Would you follow up on them? I hate that word, follow up. That's just a personal pet peeve. But anyway, would you follow up on them? And so these people would then come back to me two weeks later and I'd say, how's it going with the guy I gave you to follow? Pastor, he doesn't want to be followed up on. He won't return my calls. When I finally got hold of him, he won't meet with me. And then I got under conviction too. I kept thinking, Lord, something is wrong with this. And then I got under conviction that as I looked at the discipleship materials we were using, this was several years ago, eight, nine years ago, and as I looked at those discipleship materials, and then I looked at what I was preaching, there was a, there was a gap there. The materials all dealt with do. D-O. Do these things. Now that you have prayed this prayer and received Christ, here's what you need to do. And if you will do these things, then you will be a good Christian. And you will be pleasing to God. Do to be. Now the stuff that they had you doing was good stuff. Reading the Bible every day. Praying. Uh, witnessing. Tithing, all pastors like that one. Um, they had you doing good stuff. And, and yet, even the people that I could somehow manage to get from over here who had prayed to receive Christ, that I would get them over here to the, to the discipleship, then there was not a good track record with those. They would kind of fall by the wayside. 
And the bottom line is, and I don't have statistical things I can point back to. This is just recollection. Of all of the people over the years that would pray to receive Christ with an evangelism team, to those who became a victorious, walking with Christ, abiding in Christ, Christ as their life believer, was probably no more than one in every 200. Now, that's not a very good record. And I kept thinking, Lord, something is wrong. So we developed tell. Now, tell is evangelism and discipleship. We did away with our hit squads. You win them, you disciple them. Okay? You, 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 no passing off. You know, the Great Commission doesn't have go into all the world and get people to pray a prayer and then give them to somebody else so they can be taught the things which I have commanded you. It says, go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Well, what Tell does is uh, I also got some materials by an evangelist named Ray Comfort. Any of you know Ray Comfort? Ever heard of him? Okay, a couple of you. Ray Comfort's from New Zealand. He's a... Well, we're all unique, but some are uniquer than others. And <laughs> he's, he's the unique of the unique. But... I read some of his material and it really started triggering some things. I had him come to our church to do a uh, conference and um, I, I began to see that there was something not only wrong with the way we were doing discipleship, but there was something wrong with the way we were doing evangelism. And here's the problem I was having. We were presenting Jesus like you present a Wall Street investment. It was sort of like, you want peace? You want joy? You want forgiveness? Try Jesus. And I was having people saying, you know, sort of, why not? I'll give it a shot. And so they pray the prayer. And then they would somehow fall out between here and there. As I got to studying the Scriptures, I just went back. I went back to the book of Acts. And I know preachers say this all the time, but I really did this. I said, Lord, I have preached through the book of Acts. I have read through the book of Acts. And I, not only Acts, I did the Gospels. And I said, Lord, I want to read them I've been through all these years of seminary. I want to read these, Lord, like they're the first time. I want you to just somehow clear away the clutter and all the preconceived notions. And Lord, I know I'm doing something wrong. And so I want to know how you want it done. Well, and, and I'm not going to say some bright light came and all that. And as I said, God used some other people along the way in this process. But I began to see that as I studied the Scriptures, especially the Gospels and the book of Acts, I began to find a pattern in the way the Gospel was presented. And I came to this conclusion. It's not only important that we get the right content of the Gospel, it's also important that we get the Gospel at the right place. Now, here's what I mean by that. I found out that the pattern through the Scripture was that the gospel was not presented to people until, first of all, there was a deep sense of conviction of sin. And I said, well, Lord, I don't do that. I present it as a, um, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm not knocking anybody here. That's just the, that's what I was always taught. And you can get a lot of people to pray the prayer with you. Boy, I was troubled by the account of the rich young ruler. 
This guy comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And basically, to give you the bottom of the line, Jesus said, I ain't going to tell you. And the young guy went away lost, and there's no record of him ever hearing the gospel. I was like, Lord, talk about an open door. (laughs) What do I have to do to have eternal life? And I began to look at that pattern in the book of Acts. And I saw that before the gospel was presented, there was a deep sense of conviction. Then I thought, well, who brings conviction? The Holy Spirit. I knew that. that. But how does He do it? What are the tools He uses? And, And what I began to see, and this is where Ray Comfort helped me as I looked through the Scriptures, I began to see that God used the law to bring conviction of sin. Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law of God. And so, anyway, to make a long story short, because I want to get to some other stuff, we developed an evangelism program that when a person recognizes that they don't know the Lord, that we began with the Ten Commandments. And we began... You say, oh, that's kind of new. Well, listen to this verse. Romans 3.19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, now watch this, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That is, no one's ever saved through keeping the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Whoa! I'd read that verse, preached on that verse, but somehow it it, it never became practical. I never taught that you could work your way to salvation and all of that. That the, but Through keeping the law, you could be saved. But, wow, I had also never used the law. And so we developed a pattern in, in the, until it actually uses the Ten Commandments to help a person see that they're not good enough. Let me ask you a question. Man on the street interviews. People in America, when asked this question, do you think you're a good person? What percentage do you think answer yes? Most? What percentage answer? Give me a percentage. What percentage says, yeah, I'm a good person? I think it's 92, if I'm not mistaken. It's in the 90s. 90-something percent of people say, yeah, I'm a good person. Not perfect, but good person. Well, you know what the law does to that? It says you are a liar. To see the law does it, you don't have to do it. You just give them the law. And then they're ready for the gospel. I'll tell you another problem we ran into in developing an evangelism program that, that brought about true salvation. I think sometimes we're getting people, trying to get people to appropriate the exchange life when they don't ever have it. They've never even gotten life. They prayed a little prayer, but they've never been born again. And especially in the Bible Belt. I pastored in Ohio for about almost 10 years, and it was so different. Even though I'm from the South, I, in Ohio it was different. It was a lot easier to pastor in Ohio than it is in Tennessee. And I discovered that in East Tennessee especially, everybody's already saved. At least they tell you that. And you go through the, and you say, well, they just misunderstand. No, I... I'm talking about go through the gospel and they'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. And you say, well, wait a minute. You just told me that you've been in prison for the last ten years? You beat your wife? You're a drunkard? You're hooked on heroin? 
and you've just been fired for stealing from your employer, but you're saved? You're a Christian? I'm kind of exaggerating, but not a whole lot. Putting several together, I've gotten there. Oh, yeah, I prayed that little prayer. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. Save me. Believe in you. Amen. Took care of that when I was nine years old. Got dunked in the water, sprinkled over the head, one of the two. It's all taken care of. And I'm thinking, that's not the Bible I have. There's a transformation in your life that takes place. So I went back also as a part of this and said, all right, what do we do with people, Lord, who say they know you, but there's no evidence, there's no fruit whatsoever in their life? And the Lord just sort of brought me to a book in the Bible that He wrote for the very purpose of knowing that what you have is real. It's the book of 1 John. In fact, right over at the end of 1 John, he says, here's why I've written this book. 1 John 5.13, These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And the book of 1 John is a series of tests. It's just five short little chapters. You can read it in about 20 minutes, but it's one test after another. It has the if-then format. If you say you know Him, then this will be true in your life. If this is true in your life and you say you know Him, then you are a liar and do not the truth. It's test after test. Not showing you how to be saved. It's, first, John's not giving the gospel. It's saying if you have been saved, this will be true in your life. And so we developed as a part of tell where we, we teach people that when someone says, yes, I have received Christ, yes, I am a Christian, even if they say, yes, I have received the Lord, I am saved, whatever terminology, they have all the terminology right, then in a very non-offensive way, we come back and say, well, you know, <clears throat> Jesus said it was very possible for people to be deceived. And the Bible tells us that there are some tests we can take, we can look at our life to see if what we have is real. And, um, and then we take those tests and put them in a format that's easily communicated, and we don't grade the people, they grade themselves. <laughs> we don't say, you flunk. You know, and that's up to them. We allow the Holy Spirit to interpret that. Then, once they've done that and they say, well, yes, I, I am a Christian, I do. that's my life that you just described there, or they say, hmm, I've prayed a prayer, joined the church, but that's not me, then we take them to the Gospel, and once a person becomes a Christian, then what we do, the discipleship part. After you lead them to Christ, the discipleship. Now, here's what we do in tell, and here's the tool that we've tried to develop to just integrate this in the whole church. Alright, before we get... Well, let me drop back a little bit. Again, I went to the Scripture. And I've known this for some time, but I didn't have a practical way of putting it into effect. The pattern in Scripture, going back to what I shared with you a moment ago... The pattern in Scripture is not do to be. What's the pattern in Scripture? Be to do. Now, that's not just a bunch of little tongue twisters. The Bible starts with your identity, with who you are, who you be, so to speak. And then it says, now, in light of who you are, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, the clearest book, this is taught all through the epistles in the New Testament, but the clearest book is the book of Ephesians. I want to challenge you to do something with the book of Ephesians. 
It's six chapters and it's unique because it, it divides up right down the middle. First three chapters of Ephesians deal with B. Last three chapters deal with do. Now, I, I want to I challenge you to just take your Bible and a piece of paper sometime. Let's take a good little while. Probably take you a couple of days in your quiet time, you know, maybe an hour or two. And, um, and just open up Ephesians and begin to write down everything that it says about you in those first three chapters of who you are and what you have. Look especially for the little phrase, in Christ or in Him or in the Beloved. And it'll tell you what you have and who you are. And sometimes it's important. It's, it's kind of hard to separate what He's given you with who you are. For instance, He's given you forgiveness, so who are you? You are a forgiven person. Those, those are kind of clung together there. And I want to challenge you to look through the first three chapters of Ephesians to find anything it tells you to do. Now, you may find a little bit, but you're having to push it a little bit. Basically, it doesn't tell you to do anything the first three chapters of Ephesians. It tells you who you are and what you have. Then you get to chapter 4, and then I want you to write down everything it tells you to do. You're going to be amazed. Chapter 4, verse 1, starts out with the verse I just quoted. It says, Now, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Here's who you are. Here's your identity. Because you are in Christ Jesus, you've exchanged your old life for His life. You've exchanged your sin for His righteousness. You've exchanged your impotence for His power. He now is your life. Here's who you are and what you have. Now, walk worthy of who you are. Walk in love. Walk in light. Uh, be angry and sin not. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Uh, Stand fast in, in, in the, the warfare to which you've been called, chapter 6, praying without ceasing, etc. All the do's. Well, Ephesians is not the only book. Romans is the same way. 1 Corinthians, most of 1 Corinthians deals with do, but before he gets into all the mess in 1 Corinthians, telling them all the, the junk they got, he starts out by saying to the church, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints, the set-apart ones. He starts out by saying, remember who you are. You're saints. Now, here's what you need to do because what you're doing just doesn't jive with who you are. And so what we developed is, is a series of four discipleship lessons that, that deal with identity. When you are in Christ Jesus... Here's what we start out with what really happened at salvation. What happened to the old you in Adam? What really happened not only 2,000 years ago that Christ did for you, but what you did with Him, crucified with Him. And I have some people, preachers, they say, well, that, that's just such a deep truth. People just really can't comprehend that who are new Christians. I'm telling you, it's just the opposite. It's much more. It's much easier to get a brand new Christian to understand that than it is somebody that's had a bunch of junk programmed in their life that you have to spend half your time deprogramming programming, programming them from all the junk so you can get the truth in. And, and you know the easiest people to teach this exchange life is children. We start with our children. They just like, man, the old me is crucified. I've been set free. And, and they just, I mean, they don't have enough sense but just believe it. And then we get a little more sophisticated and we oh wait a minute, how was I crucified when he was crucified too? And now it's nine you know and we get into all this stuff. Oh to be like a child. 
Well, let me tell you how we use this. And, and, and I'm not trying to push a program. Because first of all, I don't even have it copyrighted. I'll give it to anybody that wants it and encourage you to improve upon it <laughs> and change it around. So I don't have any... You know, I'm not trying to sell a program here. Uh, I would encourage you to just take what I've got and for the influence group you have, uh, the discipleship, just to develop your own if you want to. Um, we use it, first of all, with lifestyle evangelism. And, that, and that's the weakness in it. I'm revamping it, putting two new lessons in on just how-tos to develop those relationships to share it in lifestyle evangelism. We, we use it, we've had about uh, almost 300 uh, uh, people go through this training. Uh, it's an eight-week training, and then we've had, all, it's right at 300 people, maybe a little more than 300, who have been through it. And what happens is when we have a visitor to our service, and, and they check a little card that says, I'd like somebody to contact me. I don't ever contact them. It's not because I'm lazy or don't want to. I don't want to hog up all the blessings. So I call a tell graduate who has said, yes, I want to be used. And, and I, as my secretary does, and she calls them and says, here's a visitor to the service who's in your age range. We kind of do it by age uh, because we like to get them into a small group Bible study and they're age graded. So we'll say... Here's a person who's visited the service, say they have a question. Would you contact them and you know what to do? And so they contact them, make an appointment with them, go into their home and sit down and they begin to go right through the material on evangelism. They say, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, mind if I share some tests with you that the Bible gives? They go through the First John test. Then they say, uh, you know, it'd be neat if we could just meet together again. I'd like to go through some real basics of what it means that you've exchanged your life for Christ's life. And many times they allow, they begin to meet. Then there's a, a bond there. We use it with visitors to the service. We use it for new members. When someone wants to join our church. You know, I made this startling discovery. This is, I, this is one, of the most, one of the most astounding, deep things I've ever come up with. Ready? Saved people make better church members than lost people. You ever notice that? I came to the conclusion that a good percentage of the people that are causing me fits, there were no fruit of a changed life or much less an exchanged life. And so we began to say, look, if we can deal with people before they ever become a part of the church family. And so when somebody lets it be known, I'd like to become a member of this church. And there are various ways they can make that known. My secretary calls up one of the people who have been through tell. Says, here's someone who wants to join the church. They're in your same age range. You know what to do. They then contact them. And those people know they're going to be contacted. They set up meetings with them. They meet with them four times going through the exchange. First of all, the first John test. And then through the exchange life. And then they're presented to the church. Um, our altar counselors are all tell graduates. And so when someone, we give public invitations at the end of the service. And when someone comes forward in a service saying, I want to become a Christian. Um, we call one of the altar counselors over and says, this person wants to become a Christian. Would you take them to the counseling room and deal with them? And they deal with them, first of all, understanding that, helping them understand what it means to be lost and then sharing the gospel. And then that altar counselor talks to them about going through the exchange life. And many times the altar counselor will then be the one who takes them through that four weeks of discipleship on their identity, who they are, and so forth. Um, that's everybody that joins. Um, we have about 40 teenagers who are are trained in the exchange life. Right now, I have a 16-year-old son who is um, he's my youngest of five. And uh, my 16-year-old son, who is a sophomore in high school, 
is meeting on Mondays. I believe it's yeah, it's every Monday after school. He meets with an eighth grader and uh, carries his little tail booklet in one back pocket. He, he needs to pull his pants up. You know how they wear it. But he carries his carries his little tail booklet in one back pocket and his Bible in the other. And they meet after school at the youth house, which is on the parking lot at the high school adjoining it. And he goes through the exchange life with this eighth grader before he's presented to the church. He'd already become a Christian in another church and been baptized, but uh, now he's going through it with him. We have teenagers doing that. Uh, we use it. Our, our church is big on missions. We we kind of believe God has a heart for the whole world. And um, this year, last year, we had about 250 people who went on short-term mission trips. We'll have a few more this year. We've got two teams going to Thailand, two teams going to Costa Rica. We've got a team to Mozambique, one to Kenya, one to Mexico, one to India, one to Zanzibar, one to Brazil. We've got two teams going to Canada, one to Saskatchewan, one to Halifax. We've got a team going to the Navajo in Arizona. We've got a team going to Ocean City, Maryland, to the campgrounds, one going to Mullins, West Virginia, one going to Salt that just went to Salt Lake City during the Olympics and to northern Idaho, to Appalachia, to we have disaster relief teams going out. Those who are zeroing in on evangelism, they've been trained in telling. They know how to share the exchange life with people. One of our uh, trips to Russia uh, last year, we didn't go to Russia this year, but last year we went to Russia and uh, um, the guy who's uh, over our lay counseling ministry, a, a layman in our church who was in this um, in the institute the last time back in November, uh, Jim took the tell stuff with him and shared it, did a Bible study with the Russian pastor and some lay people and the missionary. And when he was through, the missionary said, wow, it wasn't the material that wowed him. It was the concept of the exchange life. He didn't get it. You say, oh, missionaries all know this. What rock you've been hiding under? No, they don't. Pastors don't understand this. Missionaries have never... To some of them, it's an intellectual concept they've agreed with, but... And the missionary is asking for more material so he can start using it and sharing it with them. People are hungry. They, they, uh, and, and there's all kind of material. Just to take the wheel and line diagram and, and to just to take that and, and to go through it with people and see it. And, and Jim left those over there too. We had lots in, in, of the Russian uh, uh, tracks of the wheel and line. And the missionary was like, wow, uh, the Russian pastor. Uh, we use it in mission teams. Um, we're developing it now for children. It's already being taught in children, but in a more formalized sort of way for children. Uh, we have a lay counseling ministry. And in our lay counseling ministry, a huge number of people come through that. We, it's, it's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 o'clock. And, um, and then other times they make appointments, but that's the walk-in times. And our lay counselors are trained in tell, and they, they use the Exchange Life materials from uh, Grace Fellowship. Uh, they, they, I mean, we buy... We buy a handbook to happiness by the case and the ins and outs of rejection. And our lay counselors are trained to share the exchange of life. Um, in premarital counseling, I mentioned that earlier. There's six counseling sessions and one of our staff who does the premarital counseling. The exchange of life is woven all through the premarital counseling. Uh, I, I know I've left some stuff out and I don't want to give the wrong impression that you know everybody in the church has got this and so forth, but... Over the years, we've, it's, it's such a passion in my heart. It's a passion in most all the staff's heart. I think all the staff understand it and say they've entered into it, but on several of our staff, it's just a passion as deep as it is with me. 
And we've tried to weave it all through there. Now let me give you one last thing, and then I want to take just a minute for some question and answers if you have any. I don't have all the answers, but I can maybe find them for you. Um, what's the process? We've looked at the passion and the, the procedure, and what's the process? Because we only got a couple of pastors here. You say, well, I'm in a church and my pastor's not preaching or teaching this. Maybe he doesn't even understand this. What do I do? Well, being a pastor, I think I might be able to help you a little bit. And I want to share, just take five minutes or so to share about how I came to this and how God used a person in the church with me. And then perhaps it will be um, something you can use to pray for your pastor. Uh, the church where you go, some of you may be on staff or just a lay person in your church. Um, first of all, be very careful. Be very careful. The worst thing you can do is go into your pastor and say, Man, I discovered all these things. Here are the materials. Buy this book. Use this. Why don't you ever preach on Galatians 2.20? Uh, just cool it. Cool it. That, that won't work. Let me tell you how it worked with me. I um, was in, in the early 80s, and I, my first church was in January of 1977, so I'd been in the ministry about uh, six Five years probably. And uh, I'd been, only been taught the old way of every, uh, every person has two natures, black dog, white dog. They fight all the time. Dog that wins, the one you feed the most. Feed your old nature, it'll win. Feed your new nature, it'll win. That, that's all I'd ever been taught. And, and I, you know, constantly taking death to self and constantly... Uh, I never could understand it, but self is not dead, but if you think it dead, then it acts dead, though it's really not dead. And self was the same as the old nature, is what I'd always taught. So basically, it's that the old nature is really not dead, but it was crucified. But if you will just think of it and by faith claim it is dead, though we all know it's really not dead and it's really not, then it'll be dead for the time that you... And I just, I was like, I'd preach it sometime and I'd think, Lord, that didn't even make sense to me. I know it didn't to them. And... I'd, but that's all I knew. Well, God in His sovereignty uh, brought me an assistant pastor who was 13 years older than I was and way more wise than I was who didn't have a day of seminary. And um, I, I was not like just eaten up with pride. You know, I had my share, but I wasn't eaten up with it. But if this associate pastor had come to me and said, you're all wrong. You're teaching that we have two natures and you're trying to equate the old nature with self and the flesh and, and I'm going to prove to you from the Bible you're wrong and you need to change your preaching. I would have said to him, you need to change your job because you're fired. I really would. That's what I would have said. You know what he did? He prayed for me. And not only that, he, uh, he would just do little subtle things. Like he would uh, give me a book, Handbook to Happiness. And he said, Why don't you read that sometime? I think you'll really like it. I read, you know. That's interesting. Then a little bit later, he gave me a set of tapes. So this is a guy that uh, he had been on the staff of Campus Crusade, my former past, uh, associate pastor had. And he said, When I was training with Campus Crusade for Christ, this, this guy from Denver came and taught us. And uh, it's all about the exchange life. It's a 
Charles Solomon. I listened to the tapes. I said, hmm, that's interesting. Then I would preach a message in Romans or somewhere, and he'd say, we'd just be out to lunch. He'd say, do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about, what if? And he would just kind of throw out things. And I said, yeah, that makes sense. And I began to go, I didn't have one of those Damascus Road experiences like so many people have. I've found that God is not limited in how He brings people to salvation or how He brings people into appropriating the exchange life. You know, God's got infinite ways to do that. Mine wasn't a lightning bolt experience. It was over a period of time. And I found that the norm usually is at a crisis point in life. But mine wasn't the norm. I... It was sort of like, it was like the light just sort of gradually came on brighter and brighter until I saw it. And it became real in my life. So I share that with you to say, here's how to bring this into your church. If you're a pastor, that's easy. You just do it. You know, you're the pastor. Um, but if you're not, first of all, use it in your ministry. You say, well, I don't have a ministry. Well, shame on you. Get one and begin to minister to people using this, just in lifestyle, counseling with people. And after a while, you've got to take a long look. You're not going to bring this into your church in, in the next six months. But changed lives are the greatest evidence of the truth. Your life changed. The life of those in your ministry that you work with changed. Pray for the leadership in your church. Be patient, but be persistent. Give them a book. Ask them if they read it. Give them a tape. Did you read that tape? Did you listen to that tape yet? No, I'm, I'm, I've got it on top of my desk. That's what we always say. It's not a lie. I do keep a bunch of them. I've got a stack of them. I'm going to get around to most of them. Uh, but you know what? This, is always, this always kills me. These people give me this video. They'll say, would you watch this video? I say, oh, man, I'm busy. Oh, it's great. Would you watch it? So I'll put it on my desk. you watch that video? No, I'll go on my desk. You know? And finally, after about the third time of asking me, I'll say, man, I've got to watch this video. I'm tired of dealing with them, and I'll watch it. Well, you know, don't, don't be mean about it, but be persistent. And uh, pray. Trust God to change the heart of those in leadership. Well, um, again, if anything sounds that I said sounds like uh, we've got it all together at the church I pastor. We don't. We got more problems than I know what to do with. And yet I've not, to my knowledge, exaggerated on anything or misled on anything. God has honored His word and uh, the passion about the exchange life. So let me take just a moment. I don't know what time I'm supposed to be through, but um, John, you just come up and move me over when it's time. Do you have any questions that I can help you with? And if I don't know the answer, I never dread question and answers because somebody asks me a question I don't know the answer, I say, I don't know. Anybody? Yes, sir. The hardest thing, and it's easy for me to answer because it's the hardest thing for me to get down, is making that distinction between old nature and flesh. And one of the things that makes it so difficult, and here's my, let me get my soapbox out. One of the things that makes it so difficult is the New International Version of the Bible. And, and, and I want to tell you, I think the NIV is a great translation for the most part. And they do a horrible injustice when they translate flesh, sinful nature. 
First of all, it's, it's horrible scholarship. There's two different words there. I mean, two totally. And they're not even from the same root. They're not even related to each other. Uh, and, and and so that's a part of it. Plus, most of us, I'd always been taught flesh, sinful nature, self, all same thing. So I think that's it, of helping them to see that that the one Satan had authority over, the old nature, the old Adamic you, has been crucified. And we've still got the the results of its programming and so forth, but it's now flesh that we deal with, and that's the hardest part. And that's why I don't get too picky when somebody gets their terminology a little wrong. It's because sometimes they know the truth, they just get a little mixed up on their terminology. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, Well, there's a there doesn't have to be a process. In reality, there is a process. There's usually, I think, Doctor Solomon's point is fifteen. Years. Pattern of life, and then uh, the the test about loving the world, the test about uh, hatred as a lifestyle. Um, the test about a permanent turning away from fellowship. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would no doubt continued with us. Um, and then, I forgot the fifth one, but there are five of them. And, and then we just simply ask them to be open, to allow God to really show you, open your eyes, if what you have is real. And that's how we use First John. And if they say, yeah, what I've got's real, then we just take them on into the discipleship. And uh, then some of them go through that and say... No, if that's, in other words, if that's what a Christian looks like, I'm not one. And that's basically what First John is. It says this: this is what you look like if you have been born of God. That's the terminology that's used: born of God. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, and I deeply apologize for forgetting, but I will get a mail to you. I promise. If you'll just give Kathy your name and address, if you'd like them, and uh, we will send them out to you. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you all for having me. I've enjoyed Yes, sir. Well, there are only three of them. I actually cut one of them out. Uh-huh. Procedure was the middle one. Past, uh, that was where we just talked about the tail program was procedure. And, and then the process of seeing that brought about in the life of your church. Yeah, I could come up. Yeah, that's good. I could get the whole series out of this. Thank you all very much. You were a